millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Ned Bowman on his new novel, Venomous Lumpsucker. Ned Bowman is the author of Boxer Beetle, winner of the Writers Guild Award for Best Fiction Book and the Goldberg Prize for Outstanding Debut Fiction, The Teleportation Accident, which was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and the highly acclaimed Glow and Madness is Better Than Defeat. And today we're going to be talking about Ned's latest novel, which is Venomous Lumpsucker. Ned, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thanks for having me. First of all, I'm going to ask you how you would describe the novel. Well, it's set in the near future, in the about 15 or 20 years in the future. And it's a sort of road trip comedy about the extinction crisis, uh, about these two characters looking for an endangered fish called the venomous lumpsucker around the Baltic states. And so what is the venomous lumpsucker? Tell us a little bit more about this uh, eponymous fish. Well, there is a real fish called a lump sucker. I didn't make that up, but there is no such actual fish as the venomous lump sucker. The real lump sucker is a type of cleaner fish. uh, And cleaner fish are fish that survive by nibbling dead skin and parasites and stuff off bigger fish. Um, And because of that, they have to be very intelligent because they have to maintain a client list in their head. They have to keep track of how much they trust each of their different customers and how willing they are to swim inside a bigger fish's mouth and who gets priority in the queue and stuff. So they have these mental databases to run the business. And as a result, their brains are pretty big. So fish like wrasses and uh gobies are probably the most intelligent fish there are and lump suckers are part of that category so in the novel the venomous lump sucker is this fish in the baltic that turns out to be the most intelligent fish on the whole planet but by the time of the novel it's extremely endangered uh because of the warming baltic waters and also because of deep sea manganese mining on the Baltic Sea. So you mentioned that you you made up the venomous part of the lump sucker, and all the way through the book, there are animals 
mentioned often in like conversations with the characters about their relative worth, and that's something we'll get onto later. But often I was thinking like these incredibly like weird and rare animals, and it might just be a you know a species of of bat or a vole or something. And I never bothered looking them up because I specifically wanted to talk to you about this, but because they were like mixed in with with other species that we do know, like an orangutan or a chimpanzee, for instance, that gets mentioned. I did wonder how many of these you'd made up. Well, all of the ones I mentioned as actually extinct are real, but a lot of the ones that I mentioned as endangered, I made up because the problem with an endangered species is between me writing the book and the book coming out, and then a few years after that, with it coming out in paperback and stuff, the species could go extinct or it could have a wonderful resurgence. So it was too dangerous to use real endangered species most of the time in case they rendered the book out of date because of their population fluctuations. But most of the time, if I imagine a fictional species, it's based quite closely on a real one. So for instance, there's a parasitic wasp that we hear quite a lot about in the book which I had to make up because, yeah, for the reasons I was saying that if I used a real one, then I didn't know where it would be by the time the book came out. But most of the details are from actual parasitic wasps. And then I just had to make up a couple of new details to distinguish it from the real ones. And you've already mentioned that the book sets place roughly, say, 20 years into the future. But I just wanted to talk for a moment about why that particular time frame why that much into the future and not more well the big premise of the book is extinction credits which is the idea that as in the present day you can trade carbon credits which basically mean if you promise not to emit some carbon then uh, you can sell your not emitting carbon to someone else who then gets to emit the carbon that you didn't emit so the premise of the book is that in the future, there are credits for species extinction. So if you could drive a species to extinction, but don't, you generate a credit, which you can then sell in the free market to someone else. And then that gives them the right to drive a species to extinction. So basically, I just, I just wanted to give myself enough time where that system could plausibly have been established and sort of bedded in. I didn't want it to be in the first few years of the extinction credit system. I wanted it to be when it's a kind of reality that everyone's living in. So I thought it's got to be a minimum of like 10 or 15 years. And then I didn't want it to be too much longer just because the rate of technological change is so high that... The further you go in the future, the more speculative you have to be. Like the book as it stands 15 or 20 years, I feel fairly confident about a lot of the extrapolations I've made. I mean, I'm sure all of them will be wrong in at least some way, but you know, I think it's fairly safe to assume that we'll have self-driving cars and more intelligent versions of Siri and deep faked videos that are indistinguishable from the real thing. Like, I don't think I'm taking a big gamble with any of that stuff. But if I'd gone any further than 20 years, I would have had to start taking much bigger gambles. And I grew up reading pretty much nothing but science fiction. I love science fiction. So I love novels where people take 
huge gambles about like what the world might look like in 100 years time or 10,000 years time. But I don't think of that as something I would necessarily be particularly good at. And also the fact is, the further you go in the future, the more readers are like, eh, I'm not a science fiction person, this isn't really for me. So I thought 20 years, then I can come up with all the kind of innovations and disasters that I want. But I won't be jeopardizing the comfort of either myself or my readers by like forging too far into the future. Yeah. And it also means pretty much anybody that's reading this book, this is a period of time that they're going to live through as well. And that really gives it yeah, you know, that's that true. gives it an extra, an extra sort of oomph as well. I mean, God, some of the things that happen in this book, please don't let this bleak. Please don't let them um it's all come gonna true. happen. <laughs> It is all going to happen. Let's talk about the, um, I said it's bleak. It's incredibly funny as well. We should say that. This is not a, oh, not a depressing book at all. There's lots of depressing thoughts, but also it's very funny. So let's talk about our two main protagonists who are anti-heroes, we should say, in this novel. Perhaps one of them a bit more than the other. But tell us something about uh, Karen, first of all, about who she is. Yeah, so, well, a lot of people have been asking me how to pronounce her second name, given that her second name is looks like Resaint, but she's supposed to be Swiss-German. And I don't have an answer for that because I just never really thought about it when I came up with the names. But I just say Resaint, even though it doesn't sound very Swiss. But anyway, she's called Karen Resaint, and she's someone who used to work in AI, and now works as a species intelligence evaluator, which in the world of the book is a job that exists because if you want to eradicate an intelligent species, you have to spend more extinction credits than to eradicate a not very intelligent species. So there have to be people who go out there and check each time a species is about to be eradicated. So uh, she's sort of like... a scientist but she's doing it for entirely commercial purposes and each time she does it it's only because the thing that she's studying is about to vanish but this very sort of dark venal job stands in this kind of weird paradox with her because actually deep down she's incredibly racked with grief and horror about the extinction crisis. And in many ways, she's not that interested in humans, but she is appalled at the thought of all of the species that we're losing. And to her, it doesn't matter if it's a cuddly panda or a parasitic wasp to her. Either way, it's equally terrible. So she, I don't know, she represents two tendencies. Like on on the one hand... She represents the way all of us have this kind of double consciousness of being very concerned about climate change, but then also enmeshed in systems which make climate change worse. But then also she's meant to be a kind of um, philosophical extreme, like how would you live, like what would be going on in your heads if uh, you really took this seriously and you really kind of plumbed the moral depths of it. And tell us something about Mark Halliard. I mean, I was just going to say, you notice I didn't say Karen's second yeah. name myself <laughs> because I had that exact conundrum about how to try and pronounce it. Um, tell us something about Mark Halliard, who's our second protagonist. 
Uh, yeah, Halyard is an Australian uh, living in Europe and he, he lives in Copenhagen and he works for an Indian multinational mining company as an environmental impact coordinator, which basically means going around doing the paperwork and the reports about all this havoc that the mining company is wreaking on the environment. And he's kind of the opposite of Resaint. He is basically kind of cynic and an opportunist and an essentially lazy, self-interested person who doesn't really care about the extinction crisis, doesn't even really care about climate change, only really cares about the fact that climate change makes it much, much harder to have a good meal for a reasonable price, especially his beloved sushi. And then he's sort of meant to represent all of us as well. Like, you know, when I say he's a self-interested opportunist, that's not meant to be a condemnation. I see him as much closer to myself and the way I operate than Resaint is with her moral clarity. And then the two of them together are just meant to be a sort of classic double act where he is the more irreverent, sarcastic one, but... She also has a kind of vein of extremely, like, merciless, dark humour. There's also a little bit of will-they-won't-they romance between the two of them. Like, it's not exactly romancing the stone, but there is that aspect to the two of them as well. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ned Bowman and we're talking about his latest novel, Venomous Lump Sucker. And Ned, I want to spend some more time talking about the sort of world and the system that you've created. And I said that it was bleak, a bleak future. And and the book to me exactly embodies that um, Mark Fisher thing, you know, that it's um, easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. Because the entire system in this book of dealing with the climate, with environmental disaster, with extinctions, is all through capitalistic mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, in a sense... The book is a satire on the idea of using free market mechanisms to fight climate change, which makes it sound incredibly niche and boring. But, well, A, I don't think it's boring. I find it interesting. But B, I also think it has a kind of universal, that that topic has a universal relevance, not even just in climate change. Because one of the things the book is about is how free market capitalism, you know, what it's good at is finding efficiencies. So if you try and regulate it, the most efficient thing for it to do will be to find a cunning way to root around that regulation rather than follow the regulation. And that's something we see in every aspect of life these days, that the government just being completely incapable of kind of caging or disciplining this beast you know even down to just like if you live in London and you see some of the new developments going up apparently that is because the property developers of course have much better lawyers and expert witnesses and lobbyists and so on than the councils can possibly have afford so the property developers always win all of these battles and even if you know, we did start making rules that property developers would find ways around them because that's what capitalism does. And in a sense, that's why capitalism is so amazing and such an amazing engine of progress and change. But it's also why it's got us into this mess. So it's like, if you see how completely we fail to stop people putting up a tower block that was supposed to have a roof garden and instead just has like, two potted plants behind a gate that you need a smart card to get through or whatever. Like, how are we supposed to fight climate change by just letting profit-making companies mostly just do what they want and then we occasionally not even give them a slap on the wrist, but just sort of either tutter them or, you know, lightly brush their wrists or whatever. So it is about climate finance instruments but I think it's about, yeah, capitalism more generally and how part of the reason it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism is because if we try to curtail capitalism in any way, capitalism would find a way to undermine us. But on the other hand, I don't know, the book is predicting that like we won't do all that much about climate change But I kind of deliberately steered away from, it's all set in the relatively affluent north of Europe. Like if you wanted to write a really bleak book about climate change, you would set it somewhere else in the world. So for instance, the first chapter of the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, which my book has a lot of kind of weird things in common with, is about a heat wave in India. It's really devastating. There's nothing in my book that's as bleak as that. And like, as you say, it's ultimately a comedy. 
One of the the aspects of this new world that's a sort of way of setting oneself aside from you know the normal restrictions of of capitalism, but an ex, sort of an extreme libertarian version is the the sort of seasteading idea um, that is you know sort of it's not happened yet, but it but it's sort of out there and and there's a place that the the protagonists visit in this in this book, uh, Surface Wave. Tell us something about this place. Oh yeah, so Surface Wave is a kind of biotech innovation city floating in the Gulf of Finland. And it's inspired by a number of real projects that have been proposed to build either floating cities or sometimes the idea is to sort of lease a bit of Honduras or whatever so that you can start a new little micronation with none of the rules and regulations that are supposedly uh, holding back all of the existing ones. And as you'd imagine, like all this stuff is very popular these days with crypto people and, you know, Silicon Valley people. And I'm not completely unsympathetic to it. I mean, like, you know, if you're a scientist and you want to do some experiment which might blow up your lab, but might also lead to a great invention and the country you're in won't let you blow up your lab, then maybe you should be able to go to a floating city where they can't stop you from blowing up your lab. And maybe you'll die in a fire explosion, but maybe the amazing invention you promised will come out of it. Like, I do think there probably are a lot of burdensome rules and regulations that have sort of ossified in a lot of wealthy countries. But on the other hand, clearly a big part of the motivation for these uh, libertarian projects is basically not having to pay any tax, like not having to make any contribution whatsoever to a larger community or anyone worse off than you, apart from the dues or whatever you have to pay to be a member of this club, essentially. So no, I don't want all of the rich to go off and live on floating cities. But I mean, the the role it plays in the book, partly it's just like, I find the whole idea very fun and no one had really written about it. But also I was interested in this idea of, you know, so there are all these plans to fight climate change by geoengineering. And, you know, people have suggested, should we shoot a huge cloud of rust particles into the atmosphere so it will reflect the sun's rays or whatever. And fundamentally, it's a political problem because anyone who does that will be affecting millions of other people or even billions of other people in lots of other countries. There's no one in a current political system who has the right to do that. So probably anyone who does that will essentially have to sort of defect from our existing global political agreements. So it's quite easy to imagine some kind of extreme libertarian doing it. But then thinking about that, I thought it was funny to think about like, well, it's easy to imagine an extreme libertarian doing it. How would an extreme libertarian feel if it was done to them? So the original idea for Surface Wave was one of these floating cities which had 
found itself in the path of an enormous like jet of anti-climate change particles that were kind of falling down on this floating city like a kind of toxic snowfall. And you would say to the libertarians, well, like you can't really complain because your whole thing is that everyone should be able to do whatever they want without any restrictions and, you know, without having to price in their externalities or whatever. So like, this is kind of the bed you, you've made. I thought that would be funny. It didn't end up working for the plot. As you'll see, they're in a slightly different situation where they're having to survive this plague of insects. But anyway, yeah, that was the root of it that I think in a lot of political discussion about climate change, you start thinking about how does fighting climate change look if you're someone who wants to be completely detached from the political system. I mean, often if you're detached, you don't want to fight it at all. But anyway, thinking about that made me think that a seastead, a floating city would be an apt place for part of the book to take place. And just one more thing. The book, as you said, takes place mainly in and around the Baltic. But there's a place that keeps being mentioned ominously early on in the book. And then we go to towards the end of the book and we won't talk about what happens there. But this is a place called the Hermit Kingdom. Um, so tell us, tell us what this place is. Well, I don't know. You can spoil it if you want. I am a bit reluctant to spoil it because the identity of the Hermit Kingdom is supposed to be something that kind of dawns on you over the course of the book. But the role it plays in the plot is basically that, I, you know, one of the most earth-shaking consequences of climate change is going to be a huge displacement of hundreds of millions of people. Like, we're going to have a refugee crisis in the 21st century that is going to make any of our so-called refugee crises up to this point look completely negligible. So I thought, if I'm writing a book about climate change, I want to acknowledge that. So I, I want to put some climate refugees in there somewhere. I even am pretty interested in just camps of all kinds. I'm interested in kind of work camps and expeditionary camps and also refugee camps. So I thought I really want to write about a camp full of climate refugees. But as we said, the book is a comedy. Uh, so I couldn't really write about a camp full of climate refugees from like Bangladesh or whatever, because like there just wouldn't be anything funny about that. So I thought, well, who can I put in this camp where I can still go there and be funny? It's going to have to be wealthy white Europeans of some kinds, or at least basically people from the global north. Otherwise, it's going to be in incredibly poor taste. So who can it be that's from the wealthy white world that has ended up in this camp? And that's how... I came up with the Hermit Kingdom. I don't know, the identity of which, realistically, it's not that hard to guess if you hear a bit about it. But like still, in theory, uh, over the course of the book, you slowly realise what it is. Okay, well, we'll say no more on that. Can I get you to read us a bit? Uh, sure. Yeah, so I'm going to read a bit of a debate. It's a kind of ongoing debate through the whole book that Halyard and Resaint have. And... Uh, in this section, Rasain is sort of questioning Halyard on his priorities. They've been talking about this species called the spiny shore beetle and whether we should feel gravely sad about 
it's going extinct. So it, it starts with Resaint uh, asking Halliard about that. You said you wouldn't take a bullet for the last spiny shawl beetle. But last night, you said that if dogs ever went extinct, that would be totally different. So would you take a bullet for dogs? If we ever get to the point where there's only one surviving dog, I hope I'm already dead, Halyard said. Resaint rolled her eyes. Okay, Halyard said. Someone's made a bioweapon that will kill all dogs, and it's in a canister beside me, and if the canister is shattered, then it will diffuse into the atmosphere. Would I catch a bullet with my face to stop it hitting the canister? Yes. Obviously I would, Halyard said. I would be the greatest hero in human history. Oh, you think I'm a species philistine? I'm a fan of dogs merely because they offer joy and companionship to millions of people. How bloody childish of me. I agree it would be sad to lose dogs, Rosane said. Just as it will be sad to lose the spiny shore beetle. But we're not losing only the spiny shore beetle. We're losing the spiny shore beetle and at least another 10,000 species every year. You say you'd rather die than lose dogs, but to lose those other 10,000 a year doesn't trouble you at all. Christ, Halliard said, you people never stop going on about your 10,000 a year. It's like being in Jane Austen. The difference is dogs actually do something for us. Most of the others are no good to anyone. I mean, look, if it's not about nice or not nice or useful or not useful, if it's just about interesting, then why don't you care about gonorrhea? Why aren't you talking about what a tragedy it would be if we eradicated an STD? If you're going to be consistent about this, you ought to care about gonorrhea too. That's a species. He thought for a moment he'd scored a point, but Rasaint replied, I do care about gonorrhea. I do think if we completely eradicated it, that would be a tragedy. Gonorrhea is as remarkable as honey badgers or birds of paradise. Oh, come on. You really don't believe that anything can have a value of its own beyond what function it serves for human beings, Rasaint said. Value to who? Halyard said. Resaint asked Halyard to imagine a planet in some remote galaxy, a lush, seething, glittering planet covered with stratospheric waterfalls, great land sponges bouncing through the valleys, corals budding in perfect niveous hexagons, humming lichens glued to pink crystals, prismatic jellyfish breaching from the rivers, titanic lilies relying on tornadoes to spread their pollen. A planet full of complex, interconnected life, but devoid of consciousness. Are you telling me that if an asteroid smashed into this planet and reduced every inch of its surface to dust, nothing would be lost because nobody in particular would miss it? But the universe is bloody huge, Halyard said. Stuff like that must happen all the time. You can't go on strike over it. Honestly, it sounds to me like your real enemy isn't climate change or habitat loss, is entropy. You don't like the idea that everything eventually crumbles. Well, it does. If you're this worried about species extinction, wait until you hear about the heat death of the universe. I would be upset about the heat death of the universe too if human beings were accelerating the rate of it by a hundred times or more. Halyard sighed. You know how in films it's always much sadder when a dog dies than when a person dies? I've always thought it's because the dog doesn't know what's happening. The dog's just like, hmm, I feel tired and weird. Time for a nice long snooze. So as a person watching it who does know what's happening, 
you end up taking on the grief that the dog can't feel over its own death. Your mind is going, someone has to have these emotions, but the dog can't have them. So I have to have them on the dog's behalf or the kid's behalf, because this also applies to dying kids in films who are like, what's happening to me, mommy? Why are you crying? What's your point, Rasaint said. Your favorite beetle only has about two neurons to rub together. So you think you have to be sad for it, but just let the beetle handle it. It's not your grief. I'll decide what's my grief, Rasaint said. So I've been talking to Ned Bowman. We've been talking about his new novel, Venomous Lumpsucker, which is out in the UK from Scepter Books. Ned, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thanks again for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.